Hi, everybody, and welcome to another special episode of the Combinate Podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sadeh. On this episode, I was joined by Amy Wilson and Cliff Berry, who are the authors of Do Quality Differently, the playbook for creating more success in biopharma or any manufacturing. Now, both Amy and Cliff have been working in biopharma manufacturing for a long time. They've spent a lot of their career focusing on human error, prevention, and challenges. In this episode, expect to learn about what human performance is, what challenges they've seen from leadership, defining accountability from a quality worldview. This to me was probably the most impactful part of the discussion and one that I had an in-episode kind of paradigm shift on. Good written human guidance, categorizing deviations appropriately, and blue line versus black line performance, understanding work as we imagine it versus work as how it's actually completed. I really enjoyed talking to Amy and Cliff. They have a wealth of experience and a lot of knowledge. If you have any feedback for the show, feel free to reach out on the LinkedIn page or on the website. And with that, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Cliff and Amy. Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sadeh. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen, and together we can simplify by combinating. One of the things that I always think about is the way things are worded. I don't know why I thought about, this feels like doing quality the same which is going back to first principles, keeping it simple and work, the work output is conformance to the requirement and making it human, human centric, essentially. I think when I was in a role at Wyantas, when I was first exposed to human and organizational performance concepts, it was a different individual also from the nuclear industry like Cliff who had joined Wyant and introduced a lot of these, like you said, I don't know if they're new concepts, but certainly different ways of thinking and ways to apply different perspectives to, to work and managing risk in particular. And the reflections I offer at the time, I didn't really see it as different. And that's what took me some time, I think, through my career to really understand and appreciate that this is a different way to think about work, how people engage in work, how to set people up to be successful in work, and what it really looks like to manage operational risk, especially associated with human interaction with systems. It's been definitely a good journey. And I owe a lot of thanks to Cliff and others along the way for helping me get there. And so you all met before Wyatt? No, we actually met when we both worked at the same company. We both worked at Biogen for several years. So that oh, was, man. I met Cliff through his interview sure. process there. You I was did. on the interview panel. And I had the opportunity to work with him for several years there. Okay. So diving into the book, I was talking to a friend of mine recently 
And my friend worked in like a legacy manufacturing industry before, think like cars and steel, where manufacturing engineering has maybe a different flavor than it does in pharma and medtech specifically. He was telling me that he wanted me to do an episode on how to deal with frustrating errors. And I guess that's the first question I have for you on the book. What is your gut reaction when you see something happen that you think, how on earth did this happen? Particularly talking about white collar error here. I'm not talking about an operator do, doing a misstep that was worded on a, in an SOP. I'm more talking about somebody making a judgment mistake, or if you think knowledge worker, an engineer, a supervisor kind of thing. Like I've been doing this long enough where I'm not really, I don't feel for, from surprise or frustration when somebody makes a mistake, be it somebody on the production floor or a manager in an office, everybody has good intent and there's goal conflicts and there's constraints and resources and timelines and people, they used what they used last time for the most part. It's very rare someone to do something totally out of the ordinary. And yesterday's fix to a problem or a solution to a challenge is today's oopsie. That's the way it goes. Mm. Um, so no, it's not, it's not really frustrating. It's just that everybody makes mistakes and systems are complex. And uh, sometimes you have a result, which is a new undesirable result. Amy? I would agree. I think when things happen, either that you don't expect or a decision is made and the consequence is different than you anticipate. I just always find it interesting, not necessarily frustrating. Although I guess in thinking about frustrating, and we have one example in the book where we talk about the same thing happening about once a year. And so it is when the organization doesn't really learn and continues to put in what they consider to be fixes, but that really aren't addressing things that would fundamentally help, that can get somewhat frustrating as a practitioner. But yeah, in general, I think I just always view when things go wrong, if you will, that it's just always interesting. And I think personally, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, I think that, and that's the point that I was making in 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 the beginning of the recording is that to me feels very much like doing quality the same in that we're all effectively nodes in a system. And when one node misfires, then it's just what caused that node to misfire. That should be the first question, right? Not that node is dumb or that node is whatever. So do you ever get challenged on human error? All the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely all the time. I think a phrase that, that I hear that just tells me someone's mental model is not necessarily where it needs to be to be helpful is when they hear about something that happens or a mistake that is made and the response is, if they had only followed procedure or that's just basic GMP, that should never happen. And we can say should have or all day long, but I think these things just expose to us where we have opportunities in our systems to have better controls. So, you know, that's, I guess, where my head goes and being challenged on human error, like we said, all the time, because it's such a easy place to land because it's obvious. 
and how to fix it is not obvious. So I think that's what makes it hard. Yeah, it's an easy place to land when things really go wrong and it was a batch because it gives management the comfort to say everything that we did was it within our control. It went well. It's not one person, the verifier, perhaps. And then it's also an easy way to go in this industry if you have a lot of minor deviations and things are going poorly for you this month or last month, you're trying to keep up and the organization just decides subconsciously almost, these are all manpower issues. Let's just do some coaching and some counseling and close these things and release those batches because there is no impact. It's human error. How do you deal with challenges if they're coming from the top? I think the fact I've worked in quality now for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. And there's always like this, the classic blame a bad audit on the quality person. And so that typically doesn't come from equals or below. It typically comes from higher. So how do you shift the thinking of leadership? It takes, depends on the person in leadership, but it generally takes time. Sometimes you won't change their mind. That's a fact. But other times you have somebody who is open-minded and the event has happened enough times in the past where they begin to see, okay, so this is not really a, an issue with the people. It's an issue with the system that we designed and we gave them. Just... It helps if you have a history with them, you know, those, those types of events. Helps if somebody is open to think thinking in a new, different way they have in the past. And sometimes you won't convince them this time, but maybe next month or next year. You both worked at one point in your career in a specific role that's focused on human performance, right? Uh, either a department or a team that you are leading. Did you have to lobby for getting that specific department created or was it already there? Yeah, I can, I think it's interesting for me at the time, I didn't have to lobby for it. There was an extremely strong sponsor and this was at Biogen, an extremely strong sponsor. And there were organizational changes occurring generally in the organization. And it was an opportunity to create focus in this area that, like I said, our sponsor just wanted to provide that focus in a very consistent way across our manufacturing network. And so I had an opportunity, I think, under that leader to, to establish that function and a dedicated support that is somewhat sponsor dependent. I think you'll see shift in that over time. And we certainly have, but whether it's a standalone function that can drive it for an organization or it's an integrated part of what people do. I think fundamentally, as long as that sponsorship is there, you can be successful doing it either way. Have you seen human performance done particularly well in one place? Yeah. And I'm just thinking about it. Sometimes it's in pockets and it's interesting because it always does tend to be a leader or people dependent when you have folks that really understand like how to take the ideas and concepts and integrate it in how they lead, it makes a big difference. They're responding to events differently. They're asking different questions. They're supporting more learning within the organization than they were. They're spending more time watching work and talking to people about work and the types of risks they see in their work. 
know, but again, it really, it, what I've seen when it's done well, it's that person that, that is able to embrace it and really make a difference with it in their area of influence. One of the, one of the companies that I worked at had a pretty elaborate human performance program. And one thing that I thought was, I laughed. I don't know if I should have, I don't know if the intent of the sentence was to be funny, but there was the deviation cause code section that I'll quote it. It says a commonly sanctioned destroyer of psychological safety and learning is the misuse of deviation cause codes. I think that's maybe my favorite sentence of the book. And because I had to tear my hair out a couple of times trying to assign, because there's usually class and subclass kind of things as far as assigning things if you're using the softwares that we all know and love. And so you're pigeonholed by the categorizations. We did have a human performance assignable cause, but for you to use that, you had to literally speak to every category and why it's not that. And you had to get approval from somebody who's trained in human performance to assign that cause. And I personally never saw it assigned just because of the controls that they had in place. But I'm thinking with, I, I think the, one of the concepts of the, one of the takeaways of the book is human performance shouldn't be a common root cause, but what is this, what is that instance where it is the cause? <laughs> is it never the cause? And that's the thing. So with these cause codes, they're really just, they're bids. They're really two word or three word bins to best, you know, group these events together, these deviations together. And I guess it helps somebody in a retrospective way trend over time. If some buckets are growing at a faster rate than others, I don't think cause codes are causes. Human performance can't be a cause. If your cause is more, it's a, it's a rich description of the event and how it made sense for somebody to do what they did. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. If you can describe how something happened from the perspective of the people doing the work, how it made sense, then you'll never get to the reason this horrible thing occurred is because I made a mistake. Because we all make mistakes. It happens all the time. Even when we succeed and when we fail, there are mistakes occurring. But the horrible outcome is because of the systems. And so if, I guess from your perspective, the human performance bucket should never be used. It depends on what you call human performance. If, it's, if, you, if you want to say like manpower includes how we train, if we really didn't train a group of people in a certain way where they were going to succeed, you can call it human performance. Or you can say, human, you can say manpower is also how we staff and how we schedule. And the I know resourcing. we can't say, we, we really can't say this industry, how we staff. We can say how we schedule because that's using your resources, your human resources in a certain way to achieve success. That could be one in the manpower area, but it was blaming on one person who did something on that day, which led to a horrible outcome is really not going to lead you to learning anything that's going to lead you to improving. I see. Okay. So that's an interesting take on it. Wow. That's a good point. So what you're saying is that even if you were to scapegoat, and play the blame game and say, it's X person's fault. We need to terminate them or vaporize them or whatever. Then you're still left with what the cause was. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's an interesting point. So that's a double, double negative there. And did you feel like that you have, you do those cases where you have somebody who's just not a good fit for the job too, but you can see that performance happening before this event occurred. Yeah. I mean, all along, I hope it's, we've seen it occurring. If you haven't been seeing it, then there's problems with performance management in the organization. But yeah, you do is sometimes someone's a bad fit for a job, but you aren't going to come to find that or, or discover that on the day this bad thing occurred. It's been a history all along. Have either of you worked on combination products before, like drug device combination products? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Two, two concepts, not even concepts, quality system elements. The device side is a little bit different than the GMP, than that yeah. they follow a quality system process that's akin to the ICH quality system, but on the device side in the US, it's a requirement. On the drug side, it's more of guidelines, right? And so one of the, one of the foundational quality system elements on the device side is management responsibility and within that management review. Where does human performance fit into a company's management review process and bubbling up to the top? Yeah, I guess I see it as very much, much integrated that if human organizational performance is successfully integrated in your organization, it shifts the measurements and metrics you use for those management reviews. Similarly, like the conversation we're having around outcomes from deviations, I typically see in management reviews, reviews of what are the trends, what are the, the Pareto charts, if you will, of those bins that we're talking about. And, you know, it's not so much that there's a separate component of management review that's oriented toward human and organizational performance. It's more how you talk about the things that help you see whether or not your quality management systems are functioning and in control. And that's, I think, a part of, you know, what the case I think that we're trying to promote in the book is what that integration looks like. You do look at measurements a little bit differently. You don't settle for the 50-ish percent of your deviations being human related and just put more resources in training because of that. So th those are the kinds of things when we say do quality differently, that if this is well integrated, you would see changes in how those reviews are conducted. Okay. So the other thing on the device side, and you talk about in the book related to following a process is human factors, right? Human factors is an integrated part of device development. And particularly in the parenteral injectable space is scrutinized quite heavily by regulators, at least in the US. The rest of the world, the rest of the world is catching up. One of the chapters talks about human, I forget what the exact title was, but it was like human facing processes or correct me. Human focus written guidance. Exactly. Human oh. focus. Yeah. There's a chapter on, okay. there's a chapter on human focus. Better with the people. Yeah. There, there's a chapter on human focus written guidance. And last year it was like one of my, one of the first 20 episodes, I had a, a person from Australia named Kathy Walsh who wrote a book on writing better procedures. And so from your perspective, what does better written human guidance look like? Golly, the, if you look at the document, I guess there's two ways of, of describing it, probably at least two ways. One is looking at the document. One is actually 
going to watch work. Typically, it's one action per step. There's use of pictures and diagrams at the point of use, meaning not buried in the back, but right at where the the action is written, you have some picture or some information. You show steps that have more risk by using an image like an attention activator. You're using vocabulary, which is repeated throughout. There's nothing weird or different about the action verbs. So it's all very understandable. That's if you look at documents. If you go to the floor and you watch work, if the people actually use the documents and they like them and it helps them, that's a good judge too. Uh, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Have you ever seen, I'm spitballing here, but have you ever seen like a rating system for processes and procedures? I've actually, I've, I've worked in manufacturing operations before in hardware, particularly and hardware is different dialysis machines and infusion pumps because of the low volumes. In many cases, they're assembled by hand, at least before you scale. And there is some finesse involved. And so there's protocol, there's protocols to assemble. But then there's also reaction protocols in the event that you have an issue occur. And I didn't, when we were going through and putting together those processes, we did get feedback, but feedback is typically a snapshot. And I'm wondering if you've ever seen any system to collect feedback more proactively than to be doing a Gemba walk and just wondering if the process doesn't suck. Yeah, we actually had a process in place at Biogen for basically document change requests so that as people that use documentation, sometimes it was like errors they caught, like things that were wrong and that would get fast-tracked through that process. Otherwise, it was suggestions to improve it. This is unclear. Or I was training somebody new and this step was confusing to them. Here's alternative wording I'd like to suggest. System in place to allow workers to basically self-report where they saw opportunities in, in the documentation. I've seen one system like that before and it was super clunky. And the person who was the business process owner, like in my case, had to very manually remember to go to this obscure system and see whether or not there was commentary. Did you find that it worked particularly well? Yeah. 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 Thanks. Cause, but we use a software called Devonway. Um, so we were able to configure that in a very user-friendly way. And honestly, before we implemented that system. People were just sending emails to the technical writers that they knew. And so a lot was getting lost that way. There, there wasn't the centralized prioritization and oversight to the changes that were being suggested. So in our case, I think we actually found that it did work well and we were able to set it up in a way that it wasn't obscure or clunky to, to manage. So it was actually pretty successful. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I experienced that also. It was. It was open to anybody and you can go in there and look what you submitted and see where it was in the process. It was tied into email, but I agreed. I've been places too, where it's in a Excel spreadsheet or it's in a SharePoint and it's not, everybody has access to it and then it just dies. Yeah. And that's what I was talking about. You have a table in the book around Kappa strength scores. And it goes through the different ways that you can 
plug a hole, essentially. It starts with the lowest level being administrative, then moves to duplication, check the checker, then it moves to problem detection and recovery, i.e. alarms, and then it moves to hazard risk reduction and then hazard risk elimination. What's been your experience with those? And from a maturity curve point of view, do you find that you have to physically move an organization from going the one to two, just keep pressing button one and two to start to press four and five? I think, I guess, first having words or categories and it's sharing to the organization is the first step to be like, okay, so there are different types of kappas and some of them are going to work better than others just to get that understanding. And then once you start these groups, these teams are working on deviations. When you start having your cap discussions, they'll look back toward this list and make sure they're doing something that's going to have more of an impact. And I think it helps to an organization to kind of open their eyes to, hey, look at these 40 kappas from the last two months. They're all just at a node coach. How do you think that's really going to impact our performance? I don't think I have a lot to add other than just to reinforce this point around just having a language to use around it so that you can build that understanding of exactly the Cliff's point. The notes and the updating procedures, those are often just the go-to because they can be implemented quickly. And especially if your deviation volume is high and you may or may not require a kappa on all of them. You're, it's it goes back to trade-offs. And so you just want to help your organization be able to understand, you know, and cap of strength is one way to look at it. The trade-offs you're making in more, we'll say permanent controls that would eliminate something from happening again versus the, we'll just add something to draw attention to it. Sure. Okay. Under Understood. Name it, right? Is the point like whether the categories are one, two, three, four, five, or one, two, like on the device risk management side, risk control measures are categorized as integrated into the design, i.e. eliminated, or safety measures, i.e. an alert, or you basically information that's information for safety, right? Just yeah. so watch out. You're, I think the point stands that whatever the categories are, there should be eliminate, alert, and like an alert that's outside of a human and then an alert that somebody's supposed to watch out for. Like when I started, I was talking about the I always like to think of things that if one thing is true, does the opposite, is the opposite also true? And what one of the conundrums I'm having in my head from the human performance thing, and you mentioned it when we talked about seeing it done well, and you have a whole chapter on accountability. How do you reconcile accountability and saying people are not to blame, systems are to blame? It is, yeah, a question that comes up a lot. And I think the first thing that always comes to my mind is you have to reconcile for yourself the definition of accountability that you are applying. And personally, I always think of accountability as very forward-looking. And when something goes wrong, I'm going to be a part of helping to learn and make that better. And that's the accountability that I'm taking. We do tend to use accountability as a synonym for discipline. And that's where I think that's what gets us all headed in interestingly and often confusing and wrong directions. We've talked a little bit today about how 
the blaming doesn't really help. When you're looking at performance outcomes, there's a lot there to unpack. And it's not just about making sure that person, you know, faces a consequence individually. Often that's actually going to cause more harm than good in your organization. So I don't know. It, for me, it's thinking about accountability in much more of a forward-looking way. How do we understand how we got where we got and how can we make it better going forward? Similar to Amy, sometimes people just get confused of what accountability really means. If they mean performance management, that, that should have been happening all along. And to think that all of us that are right now, we're, we're going to do performance management. That's interesting. There's also the point of, if you want people to really share about their work and be open about it and be candid and help you solve the problem. And these people are the ones who actually perform the work because they really do have all or most of the answers. You really want them to be candid and open. You don't want to hang something over their head and say, if you tell us something that like we don't like, you could get suspended or terminated. It'd be great if they feel so, if they feel they can Trust the organization where they can tell them these horrible things about how work is really done because the systems that were provided to them, that we can all help improve the issues. Otherwise, they're just going to continue perhaps to hide things or speak in generalities or just make it difficult for the organization to actually improve. Yeah, so a whole bunch of you can learn from folks who perform the work, basically, and if they're afraid to share, then we're not going to learn. Yeah. Go, going back to your still left with the cause. As we close, can you walk through the blue line, black line concept in the book? Go ahead, Amy. You want to do it? Sure. Or we could each take a line. We'll okay. see. Yeah. So the blue line, black line concept fundamentally is just recognizing that work as we imagine it, as we design it, as is written in procedures. This is what we call work as imagined. It's what we call the black line. In general, you could look at it as the basic expectation. I think what I would add to describe that black line though is just, it's also often underspecified. So just meaning you can never get it so specific that any person that does that work or any group of people performing integrated activities together are going to do it exactly as a designer has in their head. So that's the black line and the work is imagined. So Cliff, do you want to take the blue line? I'll do the blue line. So the blue line is how work is actually done by the people who perform the work. They have to zig and they have to zag and they have to deal with surprises and new folks who join the team or some materials that aren't exactly prepared and ready to go. They're the ones that create success every day and they do it in a way which is different than what the people who design the work imagine the work to be. Do you typically find that the blue line is always lower than the black line or is it I, I, most I think, of the time above? I, I think in the, in the book, the drawing of it and other books where they depict it, I think putting it below, it doesn't mean, it, it, it doesn't intend to mean that it's less than, it's just different. Oh, interesting. Okay. So one, one bringing that baggage as if it's under the line, that means it's bad. It may 
It could be that the line is too specific. So they could be doing more than we even... It's actually necessary. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If, if people want to reach you, dequalitydifferently.com. That's the yeah. website. Yeah. Thank you, guys. We appreciate questions and the discussion today, and hopefully it will get people intrigued to learn more and hope that they do reach out, out to us, like you said, through dequalitydifferently.com. Thank great. you very much for having us on the podcast. No, thank you, guys.